0: Find James chapter 3 will be our text this morning. James chapter 3, verses 2 to 6. As you find that, let me just give one more plug for tomorrow's events at Camp Gilead. Annie and I ran the 5K last year, and she did amazing. She almost ran the whole thing without stopping. And it was very fun. And also, uh, I get to be a part of the Memorial Day service right afterwards. So if you're in town, Uh, and you don't yet have plans for tomorrow, please come and enjoy that at Camp Gilead. James chapter 3 this morning. James chapter 3. The message is entitled, The Power of the Tongue, Part 1. The Power of the Tongue. Let's read James 3, verses 2 to 6 together. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the brother of our Lord Jesus, James writes, For we all stumble in many ways, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths, so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is also set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And is set on fire by hell. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can unpack this and understand it. Apply these truths to our minds, Lord. So we may be sanctified. formed to your image. Amen. Well, if someone were to ask you, what is the most powerful weapon on the planet? How would you respond to that? I would probably say the atomic bomb because it has the capacity to obliterate everything in its path for five square miles. It has the ability to obliterate everything in its path for five square miles. Just think about the magnitude. But what makes this deadly blast, even more dangerous than the initial heat it gives out, is the residual effect of the nuclear fallout that occurs after the massive explosion. In August 1945, nearly 71 years ago, about 70,000 people in Japan were killed instantly. But the death toll climbed to what most say 192,000 due to radiation exposure. Needless to say, the A-bomb is incomprehensibly powerful. Yet, when we look at Scripture, we discover that there's a different kind of weapon that's even more powerful, and it's something that you all possess. It's something that you brought with you to church. The human tongue. Now, why would I say the human tongue is more powerful than an atomic bomb capable of killing more than 200,000 people? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the tongue has the ability to produce spiritual carnage. Not merely physical Perhaps most notably, the tongue spreads heresy, which is false doctrine that condemns the soul for hell, to hell for eternity. And that's the weapon we ought to fear the most. More than any man-made earthly chemical weapon. Consider Jesus' words. In Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus said himself, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear that. Compared to the human tongue, which can send you to hell, the atomic bomb is nothing. And so, if we're going to heed Jesus' command, we must stop and think what would lead a soul to hell? Well, it's simple it's the gospel, it's the theology, it's the view of God one embraces. His or her view of God and who he or she is in relation to God has eternal implications. So in that sense, the tongue is so much more powerful. The tongue can communicate a a message of condemnation or salvation. It can communicate a message of freedom or slavery. So always keep that in mind. And test everything with the word of God. But just like the A-bomb, The tongue has residual effects in our life as a believer. Out of our mouths flow, so to speak, spiritual radiation. Even the most seasoned saint will sin with his tongue. And that brings us to James chapter 3, verse 2. James said, for we all stumble in many ways. Now, first of all, as we begin this exposition, notice the all. Notice that James includes himself by saying we, meaning that we all offend, we all fail, we all sin continually. It's in the present tense in the Greek, which means there is an unceasing act happening. When this act is sinning against God, particularly with regard to our speech. He goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, the word perfect here, it's from the Greek word teleos. And it it's used to speak not of sinlessness, because it can't mean sinlessness because of the context, right? I mean, he just said we all stumble. So he's not saying that if anyone is perfect. Meaning sinlessness. He means if anyone is perfect. Meaning mature. Or or, or, a, or a moral blameless. Having moral blamelessness. More specifically when you see this word perfect. Used of persons. It's intended to speak of one who is fully grown in three areas. Number one. In mind and understanding. 1 Corinthians 14.20. Also in the area of the knowledge of the truth. 1 Corinthians 2.6. And thirdly, in the area of the Christian faith. Teleos is also used in Colossians 1.28, a very key verse. Paul wrote to the Colossians, We proclaim him, which is the ministry of preaching, heralding, commanding, and evangelizing, admonishing every man, which is the ministry of counseling, discipling, encouraging. And teaching every man with all wisdom. That's the ministry of training, instructing, and equipping. For one purpose. We teach, we preach, we counsel. For one purpose. Paul says to make every man teleos in Christ. Complete, mature. So everything a church does and everything it has... It has it for that reason alone, to make God's people fully mature. And so to be a teleos person is to attain moral maturity, which is all of our goal, right? It's all of our goal to strive for maturity, isn't it? I hope it is. We are all striving for maturity. Maturity. To be perfect, complete, to be whole. But the reality is this. None of us have attained it, have we? None of us have attained total maturity. There's always room to grow, right? There's always room to learn more. There's always more wisdom to glean. There's always more to study. There's always more to do. So while we are, by the grace of God, through the enabling power of the Spirit with the Word, we who truly believe are getting there, we are growing up, we are maturing, but none of us ever reach a complete state of moral maturity. Because he says we all stumble. And nowhere is that truth more evident than in your speech. You know those words and phrases that come out of our mouth? And what comes out of our mouth is simply an overpouring of what's in our hearts. And we know from Scripture that we all have a wicked, depraved heart, don't we? And we will until glorification. As James says in the beginning, we all stumble in many ways. Now, have you ever caught yourself thinking, wow, did that just come out of my mouth? Did I just say that? Man, I really hope that person didn't think I meant what I said because I was just having a really bad day. Caught me at a bad time. We've we've, we've thought we've done that, right? We've all slipped the tongue. And the truth of the matter is, even seasoned believers will. They might do it less, but they still do it. And so, if you're in that boat, which you are, This message is for you. And if you can't remember the last time you've had those thoughts, this message is for you. Because James says we all stumble. So let's see what Scripture reveals about the power of the tongue. Again, the title of the message, the power of the tongue. And let's see how we are to use it for God's glory. In James 3, verses 3 to 6... There are three analogies that show how the tongue, even though small, has the power to control one's whole person and influence everything in life. And these analogies, they serve as a warning to us. Regarding the potential destructive power of the human tongue. First, James compares the tongue to a horse's bit. The tongue is a bit. Verse three. Now, before I explain that, we have to keep in mind the background here, which was the Greco-Roman world, a time and culture that was in many ways different from our own. So we need to remember that while James might have used imagery different uh, if he were here today, these analogies don't make much sense to us, but they did to his audience. He reveals himself as a pastor concerned to bring a message home to his readers by selecting images from their time and from their world. Case in point, a horse's bit. He says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that it will obey us. Now, if you've never been around horses or not much, The bit is just a metal piece about five inches long attached to a bridle and it's inserted into the the horse's mouth. But it doesn't just go – it goes into the mouth in a very specific place. It's placed on a very sensitive part of the horse's mouth in between the front and back teeth where there are gums alive with nerve endings. And as the rider tugs or pulls or yanks on the reins – That metal bit puts pressure on that sensitive area and all of a sudden this 1,200 pound beast of a mammal is at the total mercy of someone as small as a child. I've seen girls the size of my daughter command a 1,200 pound animal like it was nothing. But it wasn't for that bit, there would be no control. Without that bit, it would be nearly impossible to control a large animal. But with it, the horse obeys. Now, Isn't it amazing to think that just that five-inch long piece of metal is absolutely essential to control such a large beast? Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't, I don't have much experience with horses personally. But what I do know is this. I've seen it. The most gentle Widely ridden, well-trained horse is uncontrolled without it. I've seen horses 20 years old not bent to the will of anyone else without that bridle on. So your tongue, here's the point. Your tongue serves in a similar function. That small muscle inside your mouth acts like a bit In that mouth of the horse. Look at the middle of verse 3. James says we direct the entire body as well. So as the bit determines the direction of the horse, so our tongue can determine the destiny of an individual. Believers who exercise careful control of the tongue are able to direct their whole life in its proper divinely charted course, which is spiritual maturity. But when the tongue is not restrained, even though it's so small, the rest of the body is likely to be uncontrolled and undisciplined. Now think about it. How we choose to use our tongue will affect our Christian testimony, our ministry in the church, and our walk with God. When we do not control our tongue, we are like a wild Free roaming Mustang, stubborn and rebellious to God's standard of righteousness. So, as the tongue, we have to use the bit, we have to put pressure on our bit and control our flesh in such a way that's fitting for a professing believer. Our tongue is like a bit. It controls us like it controls a horse. Secondly, the tongue is a rudder. The tongue is like a rudder. In verses 4 half and, and uh, halfway through verse 5, James says, Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. These ships are not referring to a specific specific kind of ship. There's no golden nugget underneath that phrase. He's just referring to a, a ship in general, ship in general in that time. And one thing we can know is that they were not the size of ships in our day. You know, when we think of a ship... We might think of an ocean liner or we might think of a battleship or even a pirate ship that you see in movies. But in Acts 27, we, we read and we find out that ships in general were much smaller than the contemporary ships of our time. In Acts 27, the ship that carried Paul to Rome had only 276 persons on board. 276, which it's not many compared to today's largest cruise ship, which carries 6,400 passengers. So this ship was not big. It was more common to be transported that way by ship because there were no planes or trains or automobiles. It was either horseback or ship. And that's how a lot of people got around. And the only engine that would drive these ships, if if you didn't have an army of slaves to row you. Was the wind. And the the time it took to get to your destination depended on how strong the wind was. And James uses the wind also to further unpack or further illustrate his point. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds. Strong translates a Greek word that means hard or rough or violent or cruel. So violent winds. So picture a a medium-sized boat with a sail in the middle of the sea with very violent winds in the middle of a storm. And now for us, especially if you're a Midwesterner like me, it's hard to imagine that. Because even here, I think very few people know what it's like to be out in the middle of a sea where you can't even see land. But again, James' audience would have likely been in the situation where they found themselves in that instance. Being exposed to violent winds on the water, especially if they were fishermen like the disciples. They knew fully well what it was like to be driven by strong winds out at sea. And we know that because of what we read in Matthew 14, which is the account of Jesus' walking on the water. Matthew wrote the disciples were on a boat a long distance from land. Battered by waves in verse 24, it says the wind was contrary. The wind was violent. Then, out of nowhere, remember the story, out of nowhere, Jesus comes walking on the water, defying the laws of nature, and then they become terrified. They say it's a ghost. But then the scripture says immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind. Seeing the wind. Now, if you could see the wind, that would be some pretty violent wind, wouldn't you say? Seeing the wind, he became frightened and he began to sink. Now, notice he began to sink. Think about that. How many of you ever dived in a, in a pool? Do you begin to think or are you just sink? So Jesus' divinity is even being, being revealed in somebody beginning to sink. And he cries out and says, Lord, save me. But I want to point out that it was that violent, gushing wind... That drew Peter away from the word of God. So they knew what strong wind on the sea was like. And because of violent winds like that. You need need to have a rudder. Can you imagine. Being out in the middle of the sea. Waves crashing against your boat. Violent winds. And no rudder. the ships are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires now i don't want to insult people's intelligence but i know there are some who may not know maybe children perhaps a rudder is just a vertical blade at the stern or back of the boat which can be turned horizontally to change the boat's direction it's basically a steering wheel for boats and without that small piece affixed to the stern of the boat, the vessel's useless. You can't go in the direction you want it to go. And without it, you're just adrift. It'd be like getting into a car with no steering wheel. You could have the most expensive car known to man. But without the steering wheel... It's just eye candy, right? So in that sense, the rudder controls the ship, no matter the size. Now, I've never been out to sea, as I've said already, because I'm from Illinois. The Most we have is the muddy Mississippi. But since I went to Alaska, I've been in the middle of the Ketchamak Bay in south-central Alaska. Several times, and I've been out in a small skiff, but I've also been out in a kayak. And I, I, I'm not going to profess, uh, you know, pretend to be a expert sailor, but I can tell you two things about the rudder. I can tell you with certainty how with certainty how vital it is to have one fully operational for two reasons, because you need to be able to swerve so you don't ram into a log, floating aimlessly with the current. You hit a log in a fiberglass boat, what's going to happen? You're going to lose your life and all the fish you just worked so hard to, caught to catch. But you also need the rudder to navigate through the shallow places of the cove because I saw that at one part there will be a sandbar and the water is a couple feet deep. And then the next part, you're in 40 feet of water. So you need to be able to swerve with that rudder to miss those sandbars. So again, just like it would be asking for trouble to get on a horse with no bit, it would be doubly foolish to get on a boat with no rudder. Though small and inexpensive, the presence and proper functionality is non-negotiable. And so James's second analogy of the rudder makes exactly the same point as the first. Very small things can direct very large things. The tongue is that very small thing that controls our very large thing, our whole body, our whole life. James says, verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. So like the bit in the mouth of the horse and the rudder on the ship, the tongue has the power to control the rest of us. In this way, as one commentator said, if our tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. The master switch is deprived of any power to switch on that side of our lives. The control of the tongue is more than evidence of spiritual maturity. He says, listen, it is the means to it. Interesting, isn't it? Insightful. I like how he pointed out that side of our lives. We all have that side, don't we? We all have that side that's not always shown to everyone. Our tongue slips and we think, man, who if some search people heard that, I'd be embarrassed, right? We have that side. We have that side where our tongue boasts of great things. In verse five. Those great things, they He gives no specifics, but what's obvious is those great things, boasting of those great things, it's the natural inclination of our depraved mind. And what is our natural inclination? It's pride. We all battle with that sinful thinking. And if we don't kill those thoughts, the sooner or later, those sinful thoughts become sinful words. And then you'll be like a ship out in the middle of the sea with no rudder to steer you back on the right course. So Christians, we must never let go of the rudder and learn how to steer more accurately. Learn how to control the tongue. Learn how to use it. Just as the skilled and experienced captain of a ship with time and dedication to his mission, can begin to navigate through the rough waters with more ease and confidence. So we, as Christians, must mature in our use of the tongue. We must work to use our tongue to build up rather than tear down, to bring comfort and not pain, to impart wisdom, not foolishness, to bring healing, not hurt, to bless, not to curse, To express gratitude and not criticism. Does anybody express criticism more than thankfulness? And most of all, we must use our tongue to praise God and never to blaspheme him. So let me ask you something. Do you have control of your tongue? Or does your tongue control you? Are you like a boat in the middle of the sea in the violent winds with no rudder? The tongue is a horse's bit. The tongue is a rudder on a ship. A small part controlling your entire life. Now, thirdly, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. It's a bit, it's a rudder, and it's a fire. Verses 5b to verse 6. Middle of verse 5. We find here, this last analogy for today, is not only does the tiny tongue act like a rudder and a bit, it has the potential to bring disaster. Like the spark in a dry forest. Look in the middle of verse 5. See how great a fire is. Excuse me. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on set on fire by hell. Forest translates the Greek word meaning wood. So, James might not. Be referring to a forest like what we think, right? When we think of a forest, we think of lots of trees, right? Lots of big, tall trees. But in James's day, uh, the kind of forest that we have was not common in their topography. So, more likely, more than likely, he was referring to a particular bush that covers many Palestinian hills. And in that dry Mediterranean climate, could easily. And disastrously burst into flame. And then it becomes a raging out of control fire. And the result of this is destruction. Thus, this is the natural way to illustrate the disastrous consequences of uncontrolled speech. We speak of a disease, for instance, spreading like wildfire. And will the wicked speech of a man have the same effect? It begins, it sparks, and then it wreaks havoc on the hearers, sometimes leading to belligerent arguments, physical altercations, or even war. But no matter the degree, just like fire, the tongue can destroy life. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The very world of iniquity. Now when you hear that word iniquity, you may think sin. But in originally it's not hamardia, which is the Greek word for sin. Here, James uses a word which literally is translated unjust or unrighteousness. So if you don't have an NASB, that's why the translation is different. But you'll see why iniquity is a proper rendering in a a, a second here. The word has to do with what is not conformable to justice. Not conformable with justice. That which is wrong. And we know from 1 John 5.17... That whatever is unrighteous or wrong is sin. So what James is saying here is that your mouth is the very essence of what is wrong and unjust and sinful and unrighteous in the world. Because it has the capability to bring all kinds of wickedness. The tongue is the very world of iniquity. Isn't that a shocking statement? I want you to think about that. Meditate on that this week. It's such a short and concise yet deep and profound truth. The tongue is the very world of iniquity. Just think about that. Think about how it was four simple words. Four simple words that led the entire human race into sin and death and hell. Realize that? Satan came to Eve and he spoke his first words were has God said so the, the, what led to the fall of the human race was a simple question of God's truthfulness three little words isn't that amazing Satan's use of the tongue is what set in motion the fall of man, resulting in death. Now James ends verse six with a series of three parallel participles that reveal the potential devastation of the tongues of the tongue in a person's life. Three parallel participles that further reveal the potential devastation of the tongue in the person's life. First, we see the residence of the devastation. The residence, middle of verse 6. The tongue is set among our members. It's within us. Basically, our tongue is simply an a outworking of what's in our heart. And it defiles the entire body. Defile meaning to spot or stain and body referring to our whole being. So then the human tongue contaminates the rest of the body. Like smoke from a house fire penetrates and permanently contaminates everything that's exposed to it. You ever been somewhere where someone's smoking a cigarette or a cigar? There's only one person in that room that's doing it, but everyone walks out of the room and they smell like smoke, right? It permeates everything. The smoke gets into the clothes, it gets into the furniture, it gets into your hair. In the same way, the tongue, which is a part of all of us, will, will stain the entire person. A filthy, defiled tongue stains the whole person. Then we see the extent of the devastation. First, the residence, it's in us among our members, it defiles the whole body, then we see the extent of the devastation. James says it sets on fire the course of our life. It sets on fire the course of our life. In other words, James is saying that not only does devastation contaminate self, it it influences everyone else around us. In large part, you are known by what you say, aren't you? What you say gives others a pretty good idea of who you are on the inside. If you tell lies, what will your reputation be? A liar. If you gossip, what will your reputation be? Yeah. If you spread a rumor, what will your reputation be? If you tell long, exaggerated stories what will your reputation be? If you criticize, what will your reputation be? A critic, right? Other people around you will judge you rightly by what you say. Now, I understand that actions speak louder than words, but words are pretty loud too. (laughs) And James is saying... If you don't control your tongue, it will wreak havoc throughout your whole life. Where it resides in you, it will affect you. It extends to other people around you. But then, lastly, we see a very sobering truth. Where does this come from? Where does the potential devastation of the tongue come from when not controlled? Very clearly, the word of God reveals the answer at the end of verse 6. The source of the devastation is from hell. Now again, this is another doctrine that you probably haven't heard that much teaching on. And the message today is a little bit heavy and sober because we have to deal with this, okay? Because the Word of God reveals a place called hell. Hell, James says, is the source of our wicked speech. It translates the word Gehenna which is simply a transliteration of two Hebrew words that mean Valley of Hinnom. Hinnom, excuse me. Valley of Hinnom. This valley was just outside Jerusalem, and it gained an evil reputation in the Old Testament and intertestamental period. Pagan child sacrifice was carried out there, Jeremiah 32, and trash was burned in it. It was a place utterly filthy, Repulsive and disgusting. And since Memorial Day is tomorrow, I've been recalling in my mind about my time in Iraq. I've thought then and I think now to this day that it's the closest place to a literal hell on earth. In the summer... It could get up to 120 degrees plus. So you have the temperature of hell almost. In some parts of the city, the air was barely breathable because all you could smell was human waste and garbage that aligned the curbside. As we drove around for blocks for hours on end, we'd see nothing but rubble, graffiti, and remnants of burnt cars and buildings. Some days... You would even see a corpse literally abandoned on the street. All throughout the day and night, you'd be alarmed by the sound of sporadic small arms gunfire, ground shaking explosions, and near miss mortars. The place was literally a modern day Gehenna. And I couldn't wait to leave. Naturally, then, Jesus uses this word Gehenna to refer to a place of ultimate condemnation, eternal torment, and constant uncleanness where the fires never cease and the worms never die. Now, get this. The only teaching, the only other place in Scripture, that uses this word, is in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus Christ uses this word 11 times, which means the Lord Jesus talked about hell more than the apostles and the prophets combined. So Gehenna, that horrible place where the chief inhabitant is Satan himself is the source of the filthy, vile, destructive language all of us have used. James does not elaborate the ways in which the devastating power of the tongue can manifest itself, but For the sake of time, you could just throw out a few from the Proverbs. Sins like chattering, lying, gossiping, arrogant boasting. It's accurate to say that that speech is from hell. And we should hate it. Now, this message should cause all of us to think about how we use our tongue, shouldn't it? Think about what enormous, sometimes irreversible harm can be caused to people by false doctrine first and foremost. Then gossip and insults and unsubstantiated false rumors. Such a lie, such a gossip, such a rumor can spread quicker than a force fire. Bitter, angry, spiteful words can never be forgotten. I'm sure some of you I've heard words spoken to you that still make you weep with sadness. So the childhood jest, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me is a lie. The reverse, you reverse the two, and that's the truth of the matter. Physical wounds caused by sticks and stones can heal But sometimes words never do. Our tongue is like a bit, a rudder, and a forest fire. And therefore, because of our sinful nature, we must keep under control. Or else it will harm our life, destroy our life. And destroy the souls around us much worse. Than any atomic bomb. That's ever been made. Father thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us this hard truth. To humble us and to. Examine. How we use our tongue. May Our tongue function as a bit in our mouth. May we see it as a rudder controlling the course of our life. May we see it as a out of control fire from hell with the potential to bring so much destruction. Father, forgive me for any sin in my life. Forgive me if I did not deliver this truth with the right level of compassion and clarity. Help us all to repent if we need to. Help us all to use our tongue to glorify you.